It's the Messiah Community Radio Talk Show. This is Michael James Lauren, your host. The book, The Power of Proximity, Moving Beyond Awareness to Action. Our special guest, the author, Michelle Ferrigno-Warren, she joins us. And we're going to talk about that all lives matter. You've heard brown lives, black lives. We're all in the image of God. And welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Yeah, so your book kind of hits us between the eyes when it comes to the Christian because, you know, you mentioned we can have fun having beans and avocado with our friends, uh, but a whole different story when it comes to going over to relating to people that we normally don't relate to, a different, you know, race, if you will. Uh, tell us really what your book is all about. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for the opportunity to talk about my book. Um, the book has definitely been a long time coming. Finally decided I was going to preach a little bit about what I've been practicing here for the last 24 years. So the book, The Power of Proximity, really looks at doing um, work alongside the poor in a, from a proximate place. You know, for me personally, I, my husband and I decided to live in the same community that we were going to be working in and the choices that we made, we wanted to work among the urban poor. And so not to commute and, and sort of do our work either as a day job or even in a church in an, in an urban poor area, but really make it a whole lifestyle jump. And so when we did that, we didn't at the time know anybody who was thinking that way. Um, and so it was just a real big leap of faith, but something that was so delightfully surprising because of grace and the ability to mm -hmm. bridge cultural, socioeconomic, you know, racial divides in living life alongside the poor. Yeah. And much richer. And it was in the heart of your husband and yourself. Sometimes I guess it could be one or the other where, you know, honey, it's in my heart to go to the poor side of town and they say, are you crazy? <laughs> We're not going yeah. to the poor. And the fight breaks out. Yeah, you know what? They were definitely challenging conversations. Not challenging. I mean, we were not married at the time. We were dating, and we weren't even engaged. And so it was just a great time to be talking about it and to see, is this really something that we both value and want to do? And while it was definitely David's idea, I had to think about it a little bit. And I thought, you know what? I mean, I was very, it was very clear that God was calling and directing both of us. And so it, I don't share about this in the book, but, you know, my prayer had been that God would, would call me. Um, that this would be something that it wasn't just me sort of grabbing the coattails of hmm. my potentially future husband's call, but, but God, if this is going to work because it's so holistic and because it impl implicates every aspect of our life and our future, I want the, I want the same passion and desire, you know, that Dave had as far as being holistic and God answers prayer, especially that we were going to be really together. Does. So yeah, definitely individual and collective call. Mm -hmm. And this is so important for the church, for Christians, because you look at dying churches in some areas, if only they, I'll use your terminology here, had the power of proximity, getting closer maybe to an urban area or community, then the church would still be thriving and alive. But instead they say, well, not comfortable with uh, this certain race or that race. And, and then all of a sudden the church dies. And um, would you say that's accurate? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's whole books written that about 30, 20, 30 years ago when Dave and I were making these decisions, all based around the story of white flight. So it's not even just limited to the churches. The reason the churches had to ask those questions was because with the creation of the suburbs and, you know, with some of those socioeconomic changes, I mean, you wouldn't move to the suburbs if you didn't have middle income status or higher because you needed transportation, you needed jobs to sustain that. And so we see this bringing out of basically on race and class, mostly class, but you know more 
people that had affluence at the time were more um, white, they ended up leaving. And so when the churches that they had been there for generations, you just sort of looked and it's like, well, we all live in the suburbs or we all live in a different place. The neighborhood of the church is changing. So the church followed the people, you know, out there. And you're absolutely right that there was those questions that were asked. And so when we chose to move in, you would definitely say there were, I mean, there were definitely some vibrant churches, but for the most part, as far as white, especially English speaking, you know, higher middle class income or higher, there was not that many of those at all, and mm. still even to this day. Well, let's just say that we're looking at hotels, okay? People would generally say, I want to find the best hotel, the cleanest hotel, and the best side of the tracks. You're saying, I'm going to go to that dumpy hotel, <laughs> you know, or I'm going to go someplace where it's not so comfortable, but yet I'm going to get to know my brother. I'm going to suffer with them and help them because it's the only way I can make a difference. And so, you know, you talk about it's great to give to missionaries. It's great for them to do certain, if you will, certain dirty work that we, we're willing to give. But what happens when we actually share in other people's suffering? Well, we are completely and utterly transformed. I think that's what happens, even if it's a short missions trip or just a short um, opportunity to do outreach among the poor. You begin to have your eyes open, so you just multiply a missions trip or just a day outreach by so much, and you begin to just completely be changed. And I talk about that a lot in my book. Because the whole first section is how proximity to the poor changes people. It changes the way you see yourself. Um, it changes the way you read scripture. I mean, the Bible has not changed. It is timeless. But we, if we have a more narrow perspective of ourself and culture, we're going to see the Bible in a limited capacity. And so that expands. And just I talk a bit about social construct and how our definition of what is the right way to live versus the wrong way to live sometimes has this internal moral bearing that does not you know, it does not transfer to other cultures, and it really is not rooted in, in morality according to Scripture. So that changes. And then the longer you hang around with broken people, you know, one of the things is we're all broken. But in the city, and in the, I shouldn't say in the city, but in, you know, when you're with the poor, and this is global or domestic, you know, you have less resources to cover up the problems at hand hmm. and so your inability to hide your own brokenness and that whether that's a person who you know has lived here for generations or someone like me that has just been here for about 25 years you know your inability to to cover up your brokenness is exposed and that's usually when I see people like myself who've made these decisions kind of like well you know I didn't really come to be broken I came to be a helper I'm out of here but in leading hmm. into that brokenness that's really ultimate transfer you know transformation takes place because all of a sudden, it's not me coming in from the outside, but when your humanity is revealed and when you're suffering and your pain is exposed, then it becomes shared. And it's no longer the helper versus the helped. You both need help, and the only helper is Jesus Christ. Amen. Come to save and rescue all of us. Oh, yes. You mentioned in your book, the longer we stay in something, the more we practice commitment and solidarity with those who are suffering. Yes, we want to change the status quo, you say, but if we don't get what we want, and we probably won't for a while, if ever, at least, we get to see how committed we really are. And then you say, this practice perseverance alongside friends who ultimately lose if we all don't win widens our shared experience and brings us to a place of hopeful journeying. I thought that was well said because, well, it's just easy to, as you say, to kind of be aware and not do something. And that's what this book is really all about. So uh, forgive me for saying, but sometimes I'm driving and, you know, you see Martin Luther King Boulevard. Honey, let's go, you know, 
through yeah. the <laughs> instead of saying, yeah. wait a minute, let's get to know our neighbors. You know? Exactly. No, I mean, we talk about, you know, just the Samaritans or, you know, I, I often say that this is sort of I live in I live in where the Samaritans live. You know, people try really, really hard not to walk through my neighborhood, but we'll drive hours and so much time around it and work so hard to avoid it. But but when you're in it, I mean, that's what I'm trying to do with the book. And one of the things is, is that there's a lot of gentrification that's happening and people are choosing to move, you know, closer to city centers, etc. And that is not what I'm talking about. It's not just about place. Mm. It's about your presence in that place. You know, if, if everybody who read a book like this, either in the past or, or now says, Oh, it's just about living alongside the poor or living, you know, in, in, you know, kind of this place where poor people are, it's not just about that. It's being in relationship. It's not just where you're located, but it's how you're living. You know, we we have a choice even when we are living if we're going to let people in or how, how much we're really going to let them in. And, you know, I speak about it in reference even Henry Nouwen because he talks about being the wounded healer and how ministry is a confronting place. It kind of gets in your personal space and mm. it's a irritating. You know, and so I think anywhere we are, we can put up walls of, hey, I'm only going to be your friend if it's not inconvenient, or I'm going to choose friends who are just like me so I can only deal with pains and struggles that I'm familiar with. But this is saying I'm choosing both an intentional location as well as relationships at a level that are going to cost both of us something. Because I also refer to stereotypes on both sides. Yes, you mentioned that. Yeah, moving as in as the only white and married, college educated person. I mean, I, I mean, they were people were very welcoming, but it took. There was that moment of, I'm going to welcome you in, but are you going to think that I, that you're better than me? Mm. You know, you mentioned something too, and I found it fascinating. Maybe that Christians don't realize. Oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm going to say this that we could possibly be racist and don't even know it. I mean, that we hide it <laughs> in our hearts. And you mentioned that. I'm thinking, you know what? Let me think about that. Because, you know, I wouldn't ever think myself like that. I'm sure many Christians wouldn't. But, you know, can you challenge us on that? Yeah, sure. Because I've been challenged personally. So I just want to tell you that it comes from a very personal space. And I was talking to an African-American um, colleague yesterday night and he said i mean i didn't actually know him very well he said he grabbed my book and he went right to chapter five where it says race matters you know he wanted to hear what a white woman would have to say about this and would i really go deep enough so i think that's some of the challenge of it is this just a really challenging conversation so racism for at least a person like me and not a person of color i would have said race means that i think that maybe African-Americans or Latinos or, or someone else, that, that they're less than me. And, you know, as long as I don't, like, use racial slurs hmm. or I care about them moving forward, and of course I wouldn't disparage anything, you know, that that's somehow, you know, I'm not a racist. And I use the word happy racist. It's actually not even my term. Um, a Harvard professor coined it in her work, Janet Helmson, and talks about that that's sort of the stage. And we, we don't move past it. We kind of think, oh, you know, we're not really part of the problem because we're not using bad language towards, you know, people of color. And we wouldn't really want to be disparaging about them or their well-being. But racism is not the moving target that sometimes it it 
it is portrayed as, and it's not just overt racial slurs. I mean, I think everybody knows that. You know, there's a very few people who would think that that was okay. But racism has its way, and this is beyond American culture and American American system and country. You know, humanity is a way of creating systems that are racist. So our racist tendencies have embedded themselves in systems, hmm. and unless we'll acknowledge those systems and seriously work to change them, we are living in denial of the oppressive aspect of the most oppressive part that racism is being cried out against. It's these it's these systems that have put in place and because and because they don't impact me directly, I don't even have them on my radar. I mean the hmm. very first sentence of the book says, If you wake up in the morning and the system works for you, you think it is a good system. Wow. I've had to live in a neighborhood for 24 years, and I wake up every day, and I'm like, this system doesn't work for my neighbors. What's so sad is it still works for me. You know, and that's what I've been able to see, and, you know, God's Spirit has been good to illuminate, is that there's systems, you know, injustice and, and racist systems don't don't fix themselves. And, and you were never like this to begin with, or were you? I mean, how did all of a sudden this change kind of took place? Because you mentioned you wanted to be like your sister. She's a gymnast and, a, you know, fly around, do cartwheels, whatever. And you were quite fearful and like a lot of us. So how did you snap out of that? Well, I didn't snap out of it. I journeyed out of it. I don't think after even reading this book, you're going to turn into me. I certainly, if I had read it 24 years ago, wouldn't have turned into me. You know, I think that's why I talk about this this idea of a journey so much. Because when you take yourself out of a situation and you put yourself in a new one, which is kind of that journey, it's, it's, disor- it's disorienting. Journeys are disorienting. You know, I didn't go on a walk. You know, I went on a journey and it was disorienting. And when you are in that situation, you are, in order to survive and to be able to move, forward you have to adapt and be willing to learn along the way and so if I had probably arrived having known everything and you know ready to take a walk with everybody I I think that that's so important for the posture of learning and listening and if you are committed for the long haul you begin to learn so no of course not now not Mm -hmm. only I mean I've learned so much even in the last five and ten years and anticipate and eagerly ask God to teach me more about living life alongside the poor as a white, you know, woman. God, I know there's more for me to learn. So no, it's mm-hmm. definitely a process. And what I wanted to do through the book was share not just my process, but things along the way that either inspired or taught me or connections that I had made and in reading and studying so that maybe we could make the process definitely honest so you know what you're you're kind of getting into but and call us out to a, a more commit, committed life in this way but also maybe we can make it a little bit shorter i feel like the young people today are much more aware of the injustice or the pain or the oppression or the lack of i mean the disparity among rich and poor both here in the united states and globally than i ever was well i wanted to ask you about that because when you look at the church itself it's like a litmus test in, in a sense, I mean, you can have all black church, all white church, and it kind of plays itself out almost like little societies and little cultures. And so uh, when I first came to the Lord, I would go to all these different kinds of churches, black churches, white churches, you name it. And I marveled how different it was. But, you know, breaking in uh, was never really easy because it's always going to be a white church. It's always going to be a black church. But sometimes you get these churches that they're multicultural, and it's amazing how that happens. So. How can we make that in society? 
Well, I, I think that these are intentional decisions that we have to make. I think that when you look at the white church, that's where a lot of the give has to has to be given. You know, I think so often, especially from a white um, mindset, we think, oh, we need to search for the middle road. So let's say an African-American congregation, you know, we're, we're going to try to get middle road. And I have to push back on that and say, you know, we need to, to not work so much to get in the middle because African-Americans historically and still to this day have had to give so much and the white privileged church has so much that if we give a little and they give a little, that's that's not going to make it equal, you know. And so we need to look for common, you know, common ground, and and that means that white the white evangelical church is going to have to give up more because we hold the powers to the institutions. I mean, if you look at seminaries and you look at colleges, yeah, like the Southern Baptist. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I would. Sorry, it just came out. Started on being a woman, you know, as well. So, I mean, I, I think that that's part of it. Is we have to, and I, I write that in one of my chapters. Privilege needs to take a side. You know, it's not about oh, I'll give a little bit till it doesn't hurt. No, we have to side. I mean, Jesus Christ is our example, and he didn't come for middle ground. He came for you know common ground, and not common ground like we both win. Common ground with we value what God values with His heart and at that place. He didn't come and say, hey, you know, I'm going to massage the egos of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and try to keep them all happy while I, you know, work with the, I mean, I eat with the tax collectors and, you know, the prostitutes. I mean, he said, basically, I mean, he sided with the poor. He sided with the vulnerable because he is justice embodied, mm. which is making sure we're moving together in wholeness. You have to care more about the broken and the poor, and you have to inspire and invite and call out truth and sometimes rebuke the powers of that day, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, and say, look, you are taking these laws that were supposed to be this this whole idea of, you know, my kingdom, so that we could all move forward in wholeness, and all you're doing is putting more and more rules and oppression and divides so that the poor will always stay or the broken will always stay as outcasts when you are the one who's supposed to be liberating them. Yeah. You know, and so that's what I mean by the white privileged church is going to have to sacrifice more because they have so much to be able to give and recognize that if God's justice and the way the gospel is written, which is we're all restored to wholeness together in movement and equality, then people who have so much and those who have so little, they need to give up what they have so that it's a shared, you know, that those valleys will be lifted and those mountains will be made low so that we can all walk on a just road together. Michelle, will you please run for president? Please. You sound like you sound like you could be. Is there any? Go ahead. I'm sorry. I don't know if anybody would uh, would really enjoy because I. You know what's interesting about I've had people come back and say, oh, I will fund you to run for some congressional race. And I'm like, you know, I will make it a very short term, and I'll tell you why. And maybe I'll definitely open, but at the, in the future, I should never close any door that God would open entirely, you know, that I would that would be spirit-led. But, you know, our system, whether it's, you know, I'm talking about our, you know, our church perspectives and, and power, but, you know, our government power, we have two parties 
that have a lot of resources and I wouldn't make either party happy all the time. You know, so I, I don't know if, if there would be much of a future for me in politics because we are very comfortable with our set of ideology on one side or the other and voices that really want to call out issues and, and the goodness of, of both usually don't have much of a political career, at least not at first. Well, that may be true, but to inspire, you do. And, you know, in the way you talk and, and you get these uh, points across. We're talking to Michelle Ferrigno Warren. She's the author of the book, The Power of Proximity moving beyond awareness to action and thinking about our conversation so far that you know man looks at the outward appearance but god looks upon the heart and that's where you really have that gut check throughout the book where christians can say wait a minute am i am i really pure in heart when i come to it comes to race or different issues and community and so forth and just so our audience knows too michelle is the um advocacy and strategic engagement director for the Christian Community Development Association, she's an immigration, education, and human service policy specialist and an adjunct faculty at Denver Seminary. You do all that? I do all that and probably a few things more. Mother of three kids, <laughs> married to David Warren, and proud to be uh, part of our community here in Denver. I think we all, this is 2017, I mean, we hold a lot of different hats, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned that a lot of people focus when you talk on interviews, you know, at the beginning of the book, but you like the middle and the ending. What do you mean by that? Well, I think the mid, the first, the beginning, people want to just talk about, you know, my proximate life. And, you know, I think that's probably because it, there's some radical things in this book. And it's hard to get past, wow, this is the life that you've chosen. And the reason I like the second and the third is because it gets into the meat of what are you going to do with what you know? And what are you going to do with what you have? Proximity is powerful because it compels a response. You cannot bear witness to this over and over again and do nothing. You know, and so I just am excited that I've even had the opportunity to, you know, respond um, and to be invited into this journey with the poor themselves. You know, to be able to live and, and respond. It, I didn't respond as like the white savior. You know, I, I responded in my brokenness and together, you know, we've been moving forward. Um, I often say you cannot fix a problem you do not understand and I do not understand what it means to be poor I do not know what it's like to be an immigrant I do not know what it's like to have been incarcerated I do not know what it's like to be homeless and so how audacious it would be for me and arrogant for me to think that I'm here to fix problems mm. I don't understand and so that that middle section talks about compelling a response so that we share a journey that we fix these things together and then that final section which I really do like is probably the most encouraging for people that have been doing any type of work alongside the poor for a while because really when you begin to think you know I'm gonna I'm gonna work in nonprofit I'm gonna work in a church in a poor community it's an issue that you are trying to address. And after you've done it for a really long time, alongside people who teach you so much, you know, and really want to be a part of fixing their own problems and you get to join them, mm. it's so exhausting. So you're not fixing a problem, you're working together with family. And so it sustains you for the long fall. That's hmm. the power. That's really that important. This isn't about me. Yeah, especially for people who want to go into nonprofits and some maybe, you know, it's good feedback because they may go for the wrong reasons sometimes, but uh, to be part of it. Now, this goes without saying you're probably for the the wall, right? That from uh, uh, President Donald Trump. Absolutely not. I know. No, I want to say this right here. Wait a minute. <laughs> you say that August 2016 prior to Donald Trump's election to the US presidency, 
It was one of those times the year leading up to the moment had been defined by him insulting immigrants, talking about mass deportation, bragging about building a wall on the Mexican border, and bashing women, people of color, the disabled, and other vulnerable people who lived in my community and in communities all around the world. All the while, 70% of white evangelicals were planning to vote for him. Astonishing, huh? It was a hard season. You know, you're speaking I, You're speaking about this one particular time in my life, which was very recent, but I had been spending an entire year putting together Camino del Emigrante, and we did not know when we started planning this, and I got to be the architect of that. It was such a beautiful, um, basically just to kind of give your listeners, it was a 150-mile walking solidarity pilgrimage um, on behalf of refugees and immigrants. And we started talking about this November 2015. So that's a long time. You know, we didn't know that, that August, you know, 2016, when we'd be walking it, we didn't know who the president, even the president, um, of course, who the president would be, but we wouldn't even know who we would be voting for. I mean, the, the Republican Party, the Democrat, I mean, the Republican Party, of course, had so many different contenders when we even came up with this idea. So as I'm planning this walk for immigrants and refugees, the news is just mounting and mounting, <laughs> you know, against immigrants. And I'm like, how, first of all, how beautiful that we would be able to do this together. So faith leaders, 170 faith leaders from all across the country walked this for those 11 days 150 miles you know blisters and exhaustion and and just beauty beautiful solidarity in churches from the area every five miles we had water stations and immigrant churches and you know multi-ethnic churches and white churches everybody was kind of getting in on this you know because we all were sharing this heart for immigrants and refugees who had been displaced and were around the world and were being spoken in such ill ways so it was just so good to be doing something but yeah what a dynamic it was so spirit led and I could and it is it was fighting for your family and it felt like it was very it was there was a part of it that you felt like you were fighting for your own soul as an American Christian and so yeah it was so hard well people were defending 70% of white evangelicals were defending well this is the guy we're going to back no matter what he's doing and that was just really hard well that goes back to what you said earlier that it's hard to please everyone it's so difficult because in all (laughs) fairness to the president of the United States Mm -hmm. Donald Trump what's behind all this is fear fear of our own safety and the fact is that you say that that really prevents us from being part of community in areas that we and people that we might not necessarily or ordinarily associate with it's fear yeah absolutely and i think it's so interesting that i get to talk about overcoming fear so much because i'm natural i was naturally fearful Um, I mean, I came up with reasons to be afraid. I mean, that was just how I was born. And I talk about this a little bit in that that third chapter, you know, that we're really stronger than we think we are when we get to practice courage over fear. And it was John Perkins who had really articulated all of my life's choices when when I heard him say, you know, courage is not the absence of fear. It is living one's convictions in the face of fear. And that is, you know, I just still think about that and get chills when I think about that because I was so naturally fearful and to take each fear you know and fear is not a rational thing but there's some fears that are based on some type of you know it's a, at least a mental rationale or what you're hearing maybe on the news and you're trusting you know information out there to stand in the face of fear and continue to say you know what no I'm going to lean in I'm going to practice courage doesn't mean that fear goes away it means that you have this opportunity to become stronger and 
you know, I never knew that I would become a brave person, that I would not worry about what people have to think. And I'm not an angry person, Michael, and I'm not a person who's rebellious. I'm actually quite a rule follower. I like to do the right thing. I think that's why I'll go into public policy, because the rules are so bad and broken hmm. on behalf of the poor. We need to fix them. You know, I don't want to break them. I don't want them to break them. I want them to be good and right and just, and, and you know, and, and, and so I want to be a part of those solutions. But in the midst of while we're waiting for it, we need to change people's hearts and minds, and that requires a tremendous amount of courage to speak against the grain of the status quo. And and that has been a lot of what has defined my life in action, and also not just in what I've done, but also in word. And it's funny because we think of talking before we do, and that's not been the story of my life. It's been doing and now talking about it, um, you know, to really inspire other people to not be afraid and not to let fear of the other or fear of being inconvenienced or being hurt or whatever it is to keep us from moving into spaces that God is beckoning the church. I mean, this isn't, this shouldn't be a radical thought that Christians care about the poor. I mean, we see that, you know, through the old Testament, but I'll just go to the new Testament, which is what go we're for it. living <laughs> in this church age. And Paul is saying, don't forget the poor, you know, mm. I, please he does you know, say always that. remember the poor, no matter what you're doing. And you hear of the stories of the Acts church and that's what defines them, their love hmm. for the poor, the outcasts of society. And we hear of that, you know, this is post the new Testament, but the stories of the Acts church were that, children and disabled and you know they were being thrown outside the city and they were coming in to rescue them they were doing the most radical things and we've just gotten so comfortable specifically in the united states of america because we're so privileged and because we haven't had to experience some of the pains that other christians around the world we have we've learned to be able to protect ourselves and we have the choice to protect ourselves so for me i'm just calling us to do what christians hmm. have been defined by which is radical acts of love that have nothing to do with fear that have everything to do with courage and standing in the face of fear and michelle you got to run for all I'm, i'll be your campaign manager please i mean <laughs> you you, you have to <laughs> well you you mentioned in your, <laughs> you mentioned in your book awareness also keeps us from getting stuck in our rut of privilege and gives us a cause around which we can redirect our self-absorbed lives for a moment it gives us some meaning and helps us put our theology into ministry practice when we put ministry into practice it helps us catch god's mission to rescue the world and so you mentioned also that you know in church they have the video clips and let's just look at this and we become aware of all these things that are happening in the world yet it's not enough just to do that that's where we have to do more make a difference is what you say yeah well, I would say awareness in a vacuum is better than nothing. Hmm. True. <laughs> so I think I think that we I think pastors and I think we all as Christians know that we live insulated lives, and so that's why we show those you know those videos of starving children, or we learn about victims who are trafficked, and that, like I said, in a, in a vacuum, that is good, but it's just not enough. It's not yeah. enough to change what's happening to people. Yeah, our lives have to intertwine. You say that's the. That's the yeah. power of it. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I think when we see, I have a friend, Alexia Salvatierra, and she did not grow up in an evangelical setting at all. And, you know, she's Latina, and so she doesn't always understand the white evangelical context. But, you know, of course, has spent many of her adult years, you know, working in that context. And she has probably a, a bigger part of grace, you know, for those of us who look like me. And she said, you know, Michelle, I, I don't think it's that white evangelicals have a compassion problem. 
I think they have a vision problem. They can't see things. <laughs> you know that Jesus saw the people with compassion and he wept. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that's very generous of her. And I guess I'll just go with that, even though I think we have a little bit more of a problem. But, but I think that that's what I'm trying to say is that if you see something, this isn't just for that. You know, five seconds in your, <clears throat> in your, you know, white pragmatical, pragmatic evangelical megachurch. It's really to stroke the heart. That God has put in all of his people for justice and for for compassion. And so we need to not just walk away and forget that. We need to lean in. And and I think sometimes we get overwhelmed at the cost of what it might be, so we dismiss its work in our heart. And so I'm just saying awareness of an issue is not enough to change it, and awareness is not enough to follow the heart of God, which he wants us to be a part of changing. And so, yes, I kind of talk about it not in a timeline, but a sort of a wheel that when we when we learn theology or we learn about something, we put that theology into ministry practice because we know we're supposed to be light. We we are light, you know, without trying. You know, we, we decide to not have that bowl, you know, cover up our light. When we decide to, to be salt and really move and be the hands and feet of Christ, you know, that's putting theology into practice. And when we do that, it's ministry. And ministry has a way of revealing uh, the need for God to continue to redeem and restore brokenness and rescue the world and in that practice and in that catching of mission it helps us see our bible it Mm. helps us see our theology and hunger for more which puts us into deeper ministry have you seen people come and change like you know from reading your book and understanding these issues and being convicted have you seen people who say well i wasn't normally like that and now you know i'm actually doing what you did yeah, well, okay, I haven't seen it in my book because it launched a week ago, but I hope this book helps people that I don't know change. But yes, I have. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about being a teacher by heart and a professor, you know, at Denver Seminary and interns. Yes, I have seen it changed. We started an internship program in 2005, and my intern, one of my interns, Phil Heffern, he read it. And he's just like, this is you. I've learned this from you, you know, and he is a good example, you know, decided to take his his self and he's been living alongside the poor and became a worship leader in a poor church that a poor homeless church and has had his life completely radically changed and messed up and him and his beautiful bride nicole Hmm. you know so i've I've got many many stories phil is just one of many many people that i've had the privilege i you know joe is another guy he was in my seminary class most recently and just had nothing but good but yet challenging things and he and his wife relocated and started doing foster care because they're they were hungry i mean it's not like and there are probably a lot of people like that out there there are it's like a wake-up call Part, that's the whole point of the book is you are okay. You're allowed to keep leaning in. Don't let, you know, the socioeconomic mm, norms of to numb you. Be radical and mm. do it. You will not be alone. And I'm not alone. I have so many people who have. That's what I love about the CCDA and actually decided to start working for them. Well, <laughs> how can more people find out about you? Because I'm sure after hearing this, they're inspired. And uh, yeah. again, uh, Michelle Ferrigno Warren, The Power of Proximity, the book, and Moving Beyond Awareness to Action. And Michelle says, no relation to Lou, you don't think? Yes. Well, I don't think so. I mean, I've got family that thinks so, but I, <laughs> I mean, that question I've gotten since I was a little kid. I was going to so. say Ferrigno, you know, a bodybuilder, heavyweight. And so, yeah, so I what's. Don't look anything like him. <laughs> I was going to say, you don't look like him, you know what I mean? Uh, so, how can people find out about you and get your book? 
Yeah, so definitely Amazon has my book, so that's an easy way. But, you know, I work for the Christian Community Development Association. I'm not an email snob. You know, I respond to people. Of course, I get a million emails. I might be a little slower. But, but yeah, I mean, you can check us out on our website, ccda.org. You can follow me on Twitter at mcfwarren. And, you know, we'll just kind of continue that shared journey together. That's my hope. My hope is that we'll be able to journey together and continue to see what God has in store for people who are willing to say yes to beautiful, radical things like sharing a life alongside the point. Mm, you say it. We see evidence of injustice all around us, whether in incidents or racial inequality or in systematic forces that perpetuate poverty. But the age of hashtag and armchair activists and merely having awareness about injustice is not enough. We appreciate you coming on the program. And again, the power of proximity. Michelle Ferrigno Warren, thanks for writing this book. Well, thank you for letting me talk about it. It's been very exciting. I appreciate it, Michael.